0: <laughs> okay, I'm not,
1: I'm, I'm, no, no. welcome to the usccb first freedom podcast i'm aaron weldon
0: and i am mary mccleskey
1: and also joining us today is our co-host or as our co-host is our dear colleague and friend of the podcast todd scripner from migration refugee services thanks for joining us todd
2: pleasure to be here as always
1: When Catholics in the United States think about religious liberty issues from the past, we're often thinking about persecution of Irish, Italian, and German immigrants in places like New England, Philadelphia, Kentucky. Uh, Those memories of nativism and the Know-Nothing Party run deep. In fact, we continue to deal with problems from those days in the form of Blaine Amendments. In fact, there's also even a Thomas Nast drawing hanging in the law library here at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops uh, in the library right outside my office. But another Catholic outburst in the Americas has also left a deep mark on the church in the United States. Uh, This is a conflict, though, that took place in Mexico. Today we are delighted to welcome Dr. Julia Young from the Catholic University of America to talk with us about the Cristero War. Dr. Young is an historian of migration, Mexico and Latin America, and Catholicism in the Americas. Her prize-winning book, Mexican Exodus, Immigrants, Exiles, and Refugees of the Cristera War, published by Oxford University Press, examines Mexican religious exiles, political refugees, and labor immigrants in the United States during Mexico's Cristera War. Professor Young, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Mary and Todd. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah. Well, the Cristero War, it's not well known by U.S. Catholics, I don't think. Can you just start us off by telling us the gist of what was happening and when?
3: Sure. Yeah. So in general, it's not that well known, although there have been some recent events that have helped introduce it a little bit more to U.S. audiences. I can talk about those. But um, but very basically, the war was fought between 1926 and 1929 in Mexico. There were some sporadic uprisings still into the 1930s, and they're sometimes referred to in Mexico as the Segunda Cristiada, or the Second Cristero War. So the war was between, I call them partisan Catholics, and an anti-clerical state. Um, it's important to remember that in the 1920s, 98% of Mexico was Catholic. So it's really actually a war between Catholics. Um, it's a war between Catholics who, and of course there were there were some Mexicans who were not Catholic, who were Protestants, some Masons, but for the most part these were Catholics who disagreed about the proper role of the Catholic Church in Mexican society. So um, to understand why it start to to understand why it started, we kind of have to go backwards. Um, a little bit. the Mexican Revo- well, so A lot of people have heard of the Mexican Revolution um, more than have heard of the Cristero War, right? This is the Mexican Revolution with the revolutionaries and Emiliano Zapata and Pancho Villa. Um, it's fought from 1910 to 1920, um, and it's really a massive sort of civil war that takes place across the Mexican countryside. And one of the outcomes of the Re- Mexican Revolution is one of the winning factions puts forth the Mexican Constitution of 1917. And that faction was very anti-clerical. In other words, they believed in restricting the role of the church and of the clergy in Mexican society. And so the Constitution of 1917 contains a number of anti-clerical provisions that are aimed at limiting the power of the Catholic Church and limiting, limiting the power of its clergy. So um, Article 3, for example, states that religious education is not allowed and that that it can't exist, so Catholic schools are now illegal. Um, Article 27 states that the Catholic church can't own land, that all land is owned by the Mexican state, and so it nationalizes nationalizes church-held property. Um, And then Article 130 says that, um, has a bunch of provisions about what the clergy and religious orders can do and can't do. It says the clergy can't take political positions, that they can't wear, um, that the clergy and nuns and any religious can't wear religious garb in public, and that they can't practice their religion outside of a church, which if you've been to Mexico or you know Mexico at all, you know that's that's really significant because a lot of religious activities, like traditional religious activities in Mexico take place outside of the church. Parades, marches, um, processions, de- a lot of devotional activities. So effectively the legislation from the Constitution of 1917 Makes it more different, difficult for the institutional Catholic Church to function, and also makes it almost impossible for um, people to, for for people to practice their religion in the popular sense. Like, makes it really difficult for popular religion. Um, the anti-clerical provisions of the Mexican constitution aren't really enforced right away, or I should say they're enforced sporadically. So they're enforced in some places, even during the revolutionary period between 1910 and 1920, or rather between 1917 and 1920. And there was some religious persecution during the Mexican revolution. And actually there was a, there were priests and nuns who fled to the United States or who fled out of their towns and villages during that time because of the persecution, but what really happens to instigate the Cristero War is that um, President Plutarco Elias Calles comes to power in 1924, and he was, for a lot of reasons, extremely anti-clerical. Um, he really believed that the church should be extreme, like curtailed, and that its powers should be curtailed in Mexico. And so he de- he develops a penal code that is meant to enforce the the anti-clerical provisions of the Constitution. Um, And that's in 1926. And that's known in Mexico as the Ley Calles. And so it it sets up, like, specific punishments for what happens if you don't obey the Constitution. And then he starts, his government starts enforcing them throughout Mexico. And so I believe they're enforced in... I should check my book. But <laughs> they're, they're enforced in July, I think, like the, the end of July 1926. And um, the Catholic Church, in response, like the, the Mexican hierarchy, says we can't function. The church cannot function with these laws in effect. And so they actually close the churches and suspend the sacraments all across Mexico. And so that's July 1926. And almost immediately there are popular uprisings all over Mexico by Catholics, but remember we're we're talking about a majority Catholic country vast majority Catholic country here, so there are popular uprisings um in specific places of pe- by people who resent who reject the the constitution the anti- the penal caius penal code and the suspension of sacraments and the closure of churches and the way like a couple of writers have referred to it this way as sort of for the first time you know since colonial times, there are no church bells ringing across Mexico. There's no, you know, and this is something that's really wrenching for people, because um, in many parts of Mexico, religion wasn't just something that it wasn't, they didn't just go to church on Sundays, they heard the church bells and the religious calendar sort of shaped and formed their everyday lives. And so it really was a disruptive and wrenching event for these um, religious Sacraments and ceremonies to be so. Suspended. Can I ask
0: real quick? So mm-hmm. what? What is the motivation behind the this the Constitution and that? Like, why? It was it money? Was it just? Was it a mindset against yeah. religion? Why? So we have to go further back into history. Oh gosh, okay. Right. <laughs>
1: that's how it always goes. Huh? Yeah, yeah,
3: exactly. And like, how far back? Yeah. I'm still not on. sure how far back. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe all the way. But Adam and um, yeah, yeah AG, well, let's start right? with right? Adam and Eve. Yeah. <laughs> was born and right.
2: broke well,
3: I mean, but church state. Conflicts go back to I mean we could say the medieval period, we could talk about the Reform we could talk about the enlightenment I guess to understand the church state conflict in Mexico, you could go back to the colonial period um, and you could talk about sort of tensions between the church and the crown over specific rights given to members of the clergy and to the church. These were known as fueros. Um, so there always had been a little bit of a power struggle between church and state. They had shared power in Mexico, as they did throughout colonial Latin America. In the mid-1700s in Mexico, the viceroy, the, the administrat- administrative government in Mexico, expelled the Jesuits um, as an attempt, in an attempt to sort of crack down on the power of the Catholic Church and the, the power of this particular order. And there was a popular backlash against that. So certainly this church-state tension goes back to the colonial period. But when it really picks up is after independence, when the newly independent Mexican government has to figure out how to exist as a modern nation in a Catholic country, what year so is that? this is so independence happens in 1821. So ind- independence is fought between 1810 and 1821, and Mexicans didn't agree on how to establish the new nation, whether to make it a Catholic nation or whether to make it a nation where church and state were separate. And speaking very broadly, um, liberals who tended to agree with the sort of principles of the Enlightenment of separation of church and state. Um, generally tended to be a little more anti-clerical, tended to want restrictions on the power of the Catholic Church, whereas conservatives in Mexico wanted to keep the church, in, in some cases, to keep the church and state together, to not to separate them, and to conserve the power and the role of the Catholic Church in Mexican society. So all throughout the 19th century, so through the 1800s, we see battles over liberals and, between liberals and conservatives in Mexico. Um, and in the middle of the 19th century, Um, a liberal reformer came to power, Benito Juarez, and he's kind of, he's really revered in Mexico. He's known as Mexico, kind of, I don't know, we could think of him as sort of Mexico's Abraham Lincoln. Um, He's, I mean, there are statues of him everywhere, and, but he's, again, he's a liberal reformer, and he actually passes, or he, his presidency is known as the reform period, and he passes the laws of reform, which, among other things, um, restrict the power of the Catholic Church in Mexico. So that's in the eighteen fifties eighteen sixties the the there are then wars known as the Wars of reform from eighteen fifty eight to eighteen sixty one where conservatives actually push back on these laws and attempt to um Overthrow Juarez. And they're actually successful briefly, and they, they bring back a European emperor to rule Mexico. So, with the idea of reestablishing a monarchy, reestablishing Mexico as an empire where the church will be protected. But this is maybe more than you needed. So. <laughs> well, I did <do laughs> anyway, want to jump in though with yeah. one
1: question, if it's okay, mm-hmm. real quick. Um, because even apart from the state and church struggles, when you are saying this about like even some of these devotional practices not being public. Mm-hmm. That's hard for me to even imagine. Then what Mexican culture would look like? I mean, grow. I, without, I grew up with, without any sort of religiosity being displayed in public. Yeah. Um, because my my own block is mostly Hispanic. Yeah. And people who and I grew up in Texas. Yeah. And my my high school was mostly Hispanic, and I didn't grow up Catholic. And most of the People I knew, like even if they weren't really what I would consider practicing Catholics in the sense of, like they didn't – they weren't receiving the sacraments with any kind of regularity, uh, there's still like ha- – all these religious displays are still a significant yeah. part of their lives. Like yeah. um, all these sorts of symbols and everything. It, it's just hard for me to even imagine what Mexican culture would look like. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can say, I mean, I like, think what? that's
3: why there was a war over
1: <laughs>
3: it, <laughs> okay. um, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it was hard for people themselves to imagine yeah. what it would look like. And, again, there are places in Mexico that are sort of less religious than others, right? So not all of Mexico is Catholic right, in the right. same way. You're, speaking,
0: you're t- speaking about now or at the time? In the
3: at the way, time you know, and now. Okay. Yeah, there are places in Mexico where the Catholic Church is
0: much stronger has
3: historically been much stronger um, in the 1920s there are places where um, there's a historian Matthew Butler who's done work on this who's shown there are places where the church institutionally was much stronger than in other places and in the places where the Catholic Church was stronger where people's de- and where people participated where where people participated in the sacraments with much more regularity where there was there were more priests there were more actual physical churches, um, in th- those tended to be the places where people rose up in rebellion in order to protect the church or to restore what they believed as the rightful place of the Catholic Church in society. But yeah, I mean, there were places uh, during this anti-clerical period, and really the government and the revolution after the Mexican Revolution, so after 1920, there were local governors and Local authorities as well as as national authorities that tried to implement these anti-clerical reforms um, through the through ni- through about 1940. So it's really there's this sort of 20-year period where in different places they're actually successful at expelling priests and nuns, at closing the churches, um, and at you know keeping. Catholic devotional practices, you know, off the streets and out of the public eye. But what happened was, um, people started to take their Catholicism underground. So, for example, people would do clandestine masses inside their houses. Um, people would start secret Catholic schools and bring children into, you know, their houses or into another space and, you know, continue Catholic education. People would have. Catholic ceremonies, but again, inside houses or in, not in public spaces. So there was a real sort of like privatization of Catholic practice.
1: Mm-hmm. Normally, in these sorts of in conflicts, it seems to me, at least in conflicts that we that we're usually looking at. Yeah, and really not so much our office, but like our office of international justice and peace, looking mm-hmm. at at religious liberty issues in other places. You're usually talking about minority religions that are being repressed and as you mentioned this is all between Catholics but I guess it's still I wonder if you could just help us understand the mindset of what the the group you're referring to as liberals like what they really thought they could achieve or like how they thought that they could really ex- like do such a massive overhaul of the country when you're talking about a, a, a 98% Catholic country mm-hmm. I and mean, it's it's just hard for me to wrap my head around like well, what it was.
3: I w- mean you can be Catholic and not think that the church and state should be combined. Oh, right, or not right. Think I that understand that. The Catholic part. Church should be, I mean, in, in some cases there were there there are people who are now Catholic integralists, right? Who believe that church and state should be recombined and that in fact the the state should be subordinate to the church. Right. right. And then so you can be Catholic and be an integralist on the one side, and then you can be a Catholic and believe in the separation of church and state and believe that the church shouldn't have the right to dictate what the state does and that the state maybe shouldn't have the right to also dictate what the church does, right? But you still believe in separation of church and state. And in Mexico, you know, what I think a lot of these anti-clericals, I think a lot of these anti-clericals saw themselves as wanting separation of church and state. Remember that they're in a very different context than we are in the United States, where separation of church and state is kind of one of our founding principles, right? It's not always... It gets a little messy sometimes in U.S. history. But in Mexico, there's no history of separation of church and state. Or I should say by the 1920s, when the Cristero War was fought, separation of church and state had not necessarily been achieved, and it was a very messy process. And so there, there was really a widespread perception in the United States that the church was too powerful, that it owned too much land. Um, so in a lot of ways, this was about curtailing the power of the institutional church, right? The power of the clergy, the power of the bishops to to make political pronouncements. But there's another um, aspect as well that I think is really interesting to talk about, which is that, you know, the Mexican Revolution was a military revolution, a political revolution, but it was also a kind of a cultural revolution. And there were a lot of people who, you know, and these people may have been sort of nominally Catholic, but wouldn't necessarily have been practicing Catholics because in this sort of revolutionary period, which is the 19, you know, 1910s, 1920s, the Russian revolution is happening at the same time. There's this sort of great, the, the left is rising up as a, as a force, like what, you know, and all the things that that means, you know, they're anarchists, they're Bolshevists, they're communists, you know? So, and so the, in the, the cultural aspect of the Mexican revolution or two, certain Mexican revolutionaries, Catholics were backwards and superstitious and Catholicism was a was it was prohibitive to the modernization of the people and the culture. And they wanted to create a kind of new Mexican identity, one that, yeah, that they saw as more forward looking and uh, as more modern. And to them, the Catholic Church was sorry, popular Catholicism was the opposite of that. So they both want to limit the institutional Catholic Church, but they also in some cases in some cases really want to root out what they see as sort of atavistic backwards old-fashioned practices
2: that sort of answered one of my questions uh, so moving on to my other one okay. uh, now I mean' it's sort of looking at so you had this kind of militant aggressive kind of state power mm-hmm. that's trying to quash you know the Catholic Church's role on a number of different levels, cultural and And otherwise, um, there's obviously had to have been some sort of a backlash, I would think, within church leadership. And I'm curious as to you could expand a little bit more on, you know, how did the Catholic church leadership in Mexico, Mexico. on the one hand, this is kind of a two-part question, in Mexico on the one hand, and also the Catholic church in the United Mm -hmm. States being so close proximity-wise and so embedded within this Mexican Catholic population that came to the United States even before, uh, how they responded. And how did that all occur vis-a-vis, or how did that uh, play out vis-a-vis a kind of an American aristocracy that was probably still largely anti-Catholic yeah. in many ways, yeah. and Protestant? Whew,
3: there's a lot <laughs> of so questions. That That's a of question,
2: I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we probably have to sign out. And we, could <laughs> 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 and we could make the question
1: even
3: bigger and talk about how this conflict reverberated in the Catholic world, right? yeah, sure. Because we've yeah, got the Vatican even, yeah. to think about yeah, yeah, right, too. Right, right, Fourth right, to fifth yeah. question. Yeah, 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 right, yeah right. okay. <laughs> um, okay, so in Mexico, obviously the hierarchy is totally opposed to these laws and had been working to, they were opposed to the laws in the Constitution um, and very opposed, very much opposed to um, President Callez. And they speak out publicly against it. Um, the Mexican president and the government does not appreciate this. In April 1927, a train from that was going from Guadalajara to Mexico City was blown up, and um, the government. It was widely perceived, and the government accused the um, attack. That the government blamed the attack on Cristeros and tried to then pin the attack to the Mexican hierarchy, to the Catholic hierarchy, and. it, and it probably was Cristeros that carried out the attack, but probably not the hierarchy. The hierarchy tended not to be as involved in the in the military response. Um, some supported it, some didn't. They were really torn about what the proper response was. But anyway, so in April 1927, the government actually deported um, I think about 12 members of the Mexican hierarchy, and they went to the United States. And they actually most of them went to the. Um, college of the incarnate word in San Antonio. Um, and they were there, uh, some of them for the duration of the war and some of them actually weren't able to return to Mexico until, um, like a decade later. Um, and, uh, so obviously while they're in the United States, they're appealing to, I mean, even before they had gone to the United States, they were appealing to the U S hierarchy for help and assistance. And in fact, um, One of the main players in the story that I talk about in my book is the NCWC. The predecessor organization to the
0: USCCB National Catholic Nas- Welfare Conference. conference. Yes. It was welfare yes. at that yeah. point. Yeah, it Just was yeah. Wasn't it like yeah. no, it warfare was warfare it was the National <laughs> Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> it was the National Catholic War Council.
2: Yeah, War, okay. And right. then I think that
0: was changed in <laughs> <Not> 1921. <warfare laughs> no, right. No, they were they were well. And for the listeners, that's like the the earliest. That's the predecessor to what is now the USCCB. Yeah, in yeah, right. a very broad yeah. general term. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, exactly. So the NCWC, and it's here in Washington. Um, um, and even as early as, you know, 1924, before the, before the conflict breaks out, there are Catholics from Mexico coming here to appeal to the U.S. Catholic hierarchy for money and support and publicity. Um, and then after the war happens, this really ticks up. And actually, a lot of the sources I used, a lot of the historical sources I used were from the NCWC archives because they kept really good records of who came and what they asked for. And um, so... Uh, so the U.S. Um, so the U.S. hierarchy was very, very aware of the war in Me- of the of the religious conflict in Mexico, and they had been aware since the Mexican Revolution. Um, there were several bishops that bishops and an archbishop that were very important. Um, Francis Clement Kelly, Francis Kelly, um, who had was the Bishop Kelly who founded the Extension Society. Um, he had actually been very interested in Mexico since the Mexican Revolution. He had done some work to um, host uh, some clergy that were expelled from Mexico during the revolution. And so he was one advocate for sort of speaking out about what was going on in Mexico. He published some books on um, anti-clericalism in Mexico. Um, and then uh, Bishops and and an archbishop in the places where Mexicans went in the United States during the war. So Archbishop Arthur Drossarts Drossarts, I think, in uh, San Antonio. Um, I've only ever written his name. I've never been one hundred percent sure how to pronounce <laughs> That's it. It's always a problem. Drossarts. <laughs> <I'm not sure laughs> um, you can auto tune my voice. And, make. <laughs> <He does. laughs> um, and then uh, Bishop Anthony Schuller in El Paso was a huge sort of supporter, advocate, and then was constantly looking for resources for them, um, for the Mexicans who were coming across the border as a result of the, of the conflict. Both
0: El Paso is right on the border. Right on the
3: border. Right. It's on the border with Ciudad Juarez. Um, and then uh, Bishop John, John Cantwell in Los Angeles um, is another one who is, um, you know, as the Mexican community, is growing in the 1920s, and I can talk about why they were growing, but part of the reason they're growing is because of the Cristero War. People are leaving the countryside and coming to the U.S. Um, these bishops are seeing these Mexican Catholic, Mexicans who are Catholics arriving and coming to their Catholic churches, and so they're very, very aware of this conflict, of its impact on the clergy in Mexico and on its impact on regular Mexicans. Um, and then the other organization that's really important to mention is the Knights of Columbus. Um, I, I wrote an article about the Knights of Columbus and, and what they did um, during the 1920s to um, raise awareness and also try to raise money. Um, they established something called the Mexican Fund, um, and they were their idea was to raise a million dollars. And some of the Knights of Columbus really wanted to send that money to Mexico, so it could be used to like buy guns to fight the Mexican government, wow. and then the, they are um, the, Knights, of the Knights. Knights, yeah, they're yeah. 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 gonna exercise there. Yeah. <laughs> and and the U.S. Military hierarchy, Ballard. and and this is to your question about how complicated it was for the U.S. hierarchy at this time, or for the for the Catholic Church in the U.S. at this time. The U.S. hierarchy is like, no, 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 we are not getting involved in violence, because that it was actually illegal to support any insurrectionist movement against the Cayes government, against the current Mexican government. Like after the Mexican Revolution, the U.S. and the Mexican governments kind of came to terms with each other and you weren't supposed to like send guns. You, the, the U.S. government No gun running, that. huh? No gun running. Yeah, no gun running. still not supposed to gun run. Yeah. But um, <laughs> still is a really big problem. And there was a lot of gun running. But... It wasn't officially sponsored by the NCWC at all. They really did not want to have anything to do with the gun running. <laughs> no. Yes. Yeah. Um, I feel like their ghosts would come back. And so like, no, 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 we did not do that. Um, but the Knights of Columbus, uh, so they you, what they used their money for instead was a the propaganda campaign. That's what it was called back then. But um, really like a we would call it a public relations campaign. And they published pamphlets and flyers and they did um, – and they did, uh, yeah, they did like raising awareness of the conflict in Mexico. So Catholics in the 1920s in the U.S. were really aware of it. They, A lot of them viewed it um, in the frame, in the context of, you know, c- Catholic persecution. And um, they did like there were mass collections where people raised money. But again, a lot of it went towards publicity versus going towards the actual militant effort. But um, the people who did collect money for the militant effort in the US was Mexican migrants. And that's, I write about that in my book. People came up from Mexico, they said, we need guns, we need money, or both, and and, um, and there were uh, sort of like agents who went around the various kind of growing Mexican-American communities and they solicited money and they solicited weapons and they solicited um, fighters and so there was actually military recruitment, and they brought those back to the U.S. I'm sorry, back to Mexico.
0: So Dr. Young really. So the the Cristeros were they were armed. They were yes. primarily armed yes. and dangerous, right? Yes. So, so I mean, people are people are dying in this Cristeros, Absolutely. right? Like, yeah, it, and
3: not yeah. just Catholics dying, right? Like they're also killing people. I mean, they're it's it's always important to say there was violence on both sides. It was a
2: war. Yeah, was it? Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean it was
3: it was kind of re, you know the the Mexican Revolution was really nationwide and pervaded everything and a million people died and a million people migrated in the in the in the Mexican Revolution. Wow, and in, huge. it's huge. And this was a country of 16 million people. Right. So it's it's so it that, that was re, that was enormous. The Cristero War is more regional, smaller. We don't really totally know the number of people who died somewhere between 90,000 and 200,000. So, it's still a lot of people. It's still,
0: many, many people were affected,
3: but it wasn't quite as large scale as an entire sort of like national civil war.
0: So, was there ever a point at which the, I mean, before the Cristeros War began, there were actually Catholic priests or Catholics practicing their faith in these underground churches, like, that were actually attacked by the Mexican government at the time?
3: I think the underground sort of religious the clandestine religious activity really happens mostly after 1926 like after the I mean there might have been sporadic instances of it before but um but after 1926 when people have to kind of take their religion underground absolutely if they are caught by the police or federal forces then they are they they were imprisoned they were um they were, yeah, they were, they were arrested and put into prison, a lot of them. And then, um, and then there also were a number of priests and Catholics that were um, executed by the government. And those became really widely regarded as martyrs. And some of them are officially, some of them are now canonized. Um, Miguel Pro has been beatified. But, um, and the other thing that would happen at this time was that sometimes some of these um, executions were caught, were photographed says that you know just when photography is becoming sort of really common and more people have access to cameras and sometimes the government would photograph it you know, as a way of keeping a record and also as a way of, yeah, yeah, like scaring people off from doing a thing. And then those photographs would be, would become almost like religious items themselves. And the photographs were turned into postcards and circulated really widely among, you know, Catholic partisans, people who fought as Cristeros and people who supported the Cristeros, almost as a way of saying, like, look at the martyrs that they're creating and look at, look at Mm. these people that have died. I mean, there were people that have died for their faith, right? And, and often the stories of their deaths would be told and reprint, printed and reprinted in newspapers, and you know they would talk about the torture that they endured, what they said before they died. They always would mention that before they died, usually the martyrs would say, viva Cristo which means long live Christ the King, which is where the, the term cristero comes from.
2: So what was the, gover- the US government's response to this whole situation? Did they care or was it just sort of like a wash your hands of the, the mm-hmm. problem? And particularly yeah. with this significant Mexican migration into the United States, was that yeah. an issue?
3: They stayed out of it. Um, they largely stayed out of it. It wasn't, they, they really didn't want to get involved in a Catholic conflict, in a religious conflict, especially not, they, especially not one that was against a government that was friendly to the United States. So, yeah, like I said before, I mean, there was a law against a presidential proclamation that stated that it was illegal to support, you know, like insurgents in Mexico. And that included religious insurgents. It's also important to remember that after the revolution, like there are many, you know, it takes about a decade or so for the Mexican government to become truly stable. um, And there are a number of different insurgencies, not just the religious one, against the New government, and so you know the U.S. government in some ways doesn't want to get involved, and in other ways doesn't see this as any different than you know, oh, yet another rebellion is rising up in Mexico. You know, we there in in it was in the U.S. government's interest for Mexico to be stable. Remember that petroleum is becoming um, a really essential and important uh, commodity, and so you know the oil, um, the oil, oil ownership and the oil. Trade or oil relationship is really important, so they're really more interested in stability. And Mexicans used to, when they would come to the United States to lobby Mexi- the U.S. government or the U.S. church, they'd say, "Well, we we just want religious freedom like you have in the United States." Like they would they would always use the line about religious freedom, which wasn't exactly what they want. They wanted the, to overthrow the Mexican government, and they wanted to over they wanted to overthrow the Constitution of 1917. And that never seemed to sway people in the in the actual in the U.S. government because I think it, it wouldn't. I don't see how the U.S. government could have supported a Catholic revolution in yeah, Mexico, sure right, you yeah. know. Yeah. And, and aside from all of the all of the sort of mainstream concerns in U.S. politics at that time about like Catholics in government, right? When was the Al Smith campaign? That was late? twenty-eight oh yeah okay yeah. so the al smith campaign is in 1928 and so there's this big debate happening about like yeah. whether catholics are even
2: fit to rule Fit and, to uh, rule, right yeah, like because Republic. they're
3: gonna just be loyal to the vatican and mm-hmm. they're not you know they have a, another leader which is the pope and so um so yeah so the know. u.s what, government what is Lily? the al smith
0: that might be yeah, you know, the that's the a little niche. niche the governor oh. of new
2: york who ran for president oh, in 19- tw- yeah, 1928 yeah. Okay. that's
0: right and there's
3: a there's a debate over whether a catholic should be president, right? Because a can a Catholic be truly loyal to his or her nation when they're loyal to the Pope and the Vatican, right? Which is seen which is another political power. Um so so the US government really sort of stays out of it and in fact allows the CAES government to import arms. I, like then as now, most of the weapons are coming from the United States. So the United States is a really important it plays a really important role in any conflict in Mexico, because you get to have a conflict, you got to get the guns and the guns are going to come to the from the US. So there was um, a ton of weapons smuggling, but then the Mexican government was allowed to just purchase like train loads of weapons and bring them into into Mexico.
2: Did the uh, so we talked a lot about the US mm-hmm. Mexico situation, did the, this conflict at all reverberate into the rest of Latin America?
3: Yeah, the Vatican, of course, is very concerned about the conflict, and and. There are many, many like archival files on that sort of sh- demonstrate how how concerned and how many people in the Vatican were involved in. Uh, it was commonly referred to as the Mexican problem, right? This mm-hmm. this problem of um, religious persecution in Mexico and the Cristero War in Mexico, and uh, and Vatican diplomats were also involved, right? Other Latin American countries, I mean, they're all dealing with. They're not all, but some of them are dealing with similar issues to Mexico. They all have this question. Latin American independence happens in the 1820s, so this is 100 years after Latin American in, after Latin American independence from Spain, and they all have this question about the role of the church and the role of the state, and and how to balance that out, how to how to have an independent nation and yet be a Catholic country. So there are a, a lot of them are having similar debates between liberals and conservatives, and so liberals support what. President Caius is doing, and conservatives support the Cristeros. So, you know, I've seen, yeah, I've seen, I mean, it, there are, I've seen various evidence of sort of like, you know, that the newspapers throughout Latin America are really following the conflict, and that Catholic groups, um, Catholic, lay, lay Catholic groups, like the Knights of Columbus, but sort of comparable groups in both Latin America and in Europe, were really following the conflict. They're writing about it as almost sort of as it's happening and as soon as it's over, they're publicizing the stories of the martyrs the martyrdom angle is kind of appealing to Catholic, you know, like Catholics, we like we like our martyrs, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And well, that's why it's such it a mistake, right? <laughs> right.
1: That's, yeah, that's why it's such a mistake when these governments yeah. a make a big display. <laughs> oh, yeah. of for uh, a religion whose main symbol is a man being executed right. by the state. Right. <laughs> right,
3: right. I mean, they're literally in Mexico. Some of the Cristero fighters were hung from telegraph wires like almost crucifixion style. Mm-hmm. And that's an image that has, you know, remained in people's memories. And the image of priests being shot in a firing squad um, and the image of civilian martyrs. There was a child martyr who was, um, he was, um, that he was featured in the movie about the Crustero War, the, um, for greater glory. But uh, and those those kinds of events are still remembered in Mexico for sure. I mean, you can go to the town of Santa Ana de Guadalupe in in Jalisco. It has an entire sort of like shrine and um, church that's dedicated to the martyrs of the Cristero War with, you know, pictures of them all. And then in churches all throughout the sort of the region where the war was fought most intensely, which is the, we call it the west central region of Mexico, but it's like kind of near Guadalajara, kind of like in between Guadalajara and Mexico City. And in churches all throughout there, there are images of the Cristero martyrs that you can pray to, like inside chapels or whatever. So it's very much remembered. And I think that it's because of that.
1: Well, that's two questions mm-hmm. then. One, just I, I don't think we've ever talked about just how this came to an end, yeah. basically. So, I mean, how was how this resolved? But I think that plays into the next question, which you've already started to answer. What is the legacy of this whole conflict you know mm-hmm. how is it yeah. remembered is it still debated um, yeah. you know yeah. is it within mexico like and even in, in especially like in the in the places in the united states where where people came were deported to and that sort of thing like right. how how is this how is it remembered what what has been the effect of it? How do people still argue about this?
3: Yeah. Okay, well, how it ended, um, and some people might argue that it never totally ended. But Okay, um, <laughs> well, that says
1: something about the legacy, I guess. <laughs> but then. that's like the
3: revolution too, right? People argue that the revolution is sort of like it, it's an ongoing, like when does a revolution end? You know, the, the cultural part of it is ongoing. But um, okay, so it ends in um, summer 1929 after a concerted effort by U.S. diplomats, Vatican diplomats, U.S. Uh, representatives of the U.S. Catholic hierarchy, including um, John Walsh from the NCWC, to negotiate, to help to broker an agreement between the Mexican government and the Catholic Church. And ultimately what happens is the bishops and the Mexican government agree to stop the conflict. Essentially, um, the bishops agree to reopen the churches and tell the Cristero fighters to lay down their arms. And the Mexican government sort of makes some promises about stopping the worst of the persecution doesn't necessarily really keep those promises and so so the way the war ended was very unsatisfying for the Cristero fighters who had been in the field feeling like dying for their faith feeling like they were fighting for their faith you know and were willing to go on Um, and in fact I'm not this I'm not a military historian but you know they they weren't really close to being defeated they were kind of at a stalemate. The Jean Maier, one of the preeminent historians of the Cristero War, basically says that, that they're, they had the government and the Cristeros were at a stalemate. The government couldn't defeat the Cristeros. The Cristeros couldn't defeat the government. And mm-hmm. so it was going to, you know, it could have continued to be, it could have continued on as a much longer kind of almost like entrenched conflict in that region. But when the hierarchy essentially said well we've reached an agreement with the government you need to lay down your arms the Cristeros largely did that Um, and they and and so the major fighting in the countryside stopped but I said before that there was still there were there were then um, sort of new episodes of like government persecution and then Cristero uprisings throughout the 1930s they were just much smaller Um, and the Mexican hierarchy actually wasn't even of one mind on this and you know That's always why it's always you guys know this, but like when you talk about what did the church think or what did the bishops think, like they don't all think the same thing, Mm -hmm. right? Not everybody thinks the same thing. So there were some bishops that really wanted to keep fighting and other bishops that wanted a peace agreement. And there was a lot of discomfort with the bishops and with the Vatican over this concept of a religious war, you know, like, should Catholics be taking up arms like this against their government? So anyway, so that is how it ended, I guess you could say, not with a bang, but with with a whimper. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And that's also that unsatisfactory end, I think, helped contribute to the ways that the war resonated in people's minds afterwards. Like these, there was a sense, and I would argue is still a sense among some people in Mexico and in the United States that the revolutionary government was unjust, was unfair, was repressive to Catholics. The stories of the Cristero War, like the martyrs or the stories of the battles or even sort of the songs or the artwork, that all survived and was remembered by people. One thing that's interesting is the, the underground schools. Um, so I, I, I had said that religious education was outlawed, and that actually remained on the books for a really long time in Mexico, although after 1940, you see more religious schools being allowed. But those underground schools, um, people continued organizing the underground schools through the 1940s. And so, and those students were really educated with the idea that about, were educated about the Cristero conflict, were educated about the repression of the Mexican government. And so, and those students grew up to, like some of them are still alive
0: today. Dr. Young, it sounds like you're saying some of these um, repressive laws for of religion in Mexico are, 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 were still on the books yeah, at the time they, after the quote unquote um, end of the war. Yeah,
3: they were not fully, um, the constitution wasn't, the religious restrictions weren't taken out of the constitution until 1991 or 1992 under oh. president Salinas. Wow. Yeah, they weren't enforced after about 1940 like into the 1940s they're not enforced although there continued to be um conflicts between Catholics and the state even into throughout the 1940s which is going to be my second book so stay tuned. Oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, there were you know Catholics were kind of shut out. I'm sorry. I see I'm making a mistake. I partisan Catholic or Catholic partisans. So like, they're all Catholics, remember? So when I sometimes I'll do that and say like, well, Catholics couldn't participate in politics. So Catholic partisans, so that some of the people that had fought the Crusader war um, f- were really marginalized politically throughout the 1940s and 1950s, and really almost up until the 80s and 90s. And it was only in the, I would say in the 90s and 2000s that the Catholic church kind of reemerges as a, very strong political force. Catholic Church and lay Catholic groups reemerge as a very strong political force in Mexico. In other words, yeah, these 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 religious restrictions stay on the books. Of course, people are allowed to practice their faith in Mexico. Again, I would say sort of nineteen forty onwards, you don't see the kinds of persecution and religious restriction that you saw before that um the pope comes to mexico in 1972 like the government recognizes that mexico is a catholic com- country and i think kind of wisely learns to leave people's religious expression alone it sort of leaves some of the some of the legislation on the books but doesn't enforce it in a way that makes people feel like they can't practice their faith and that kind of neutralizes the religious conflict in mexico but one thing that another thing is that's kind of interesting is that what what a lot of people from Mexico told me who talked to me about the Cristero conflict is that it was barely mentioned in textbooks, like public school textbooks in Mexico at all. And so, mo- like, unless you had these kind of family memories of it, you grew up not really learning about it at all. And it was regarded as a kind of forgotten conflict for a long time. And it was only remembered in the regions where, pe- where it was fought and with the families, like, within the families of people who fought it. And one thing I saw when interviewing people is people would have their own family, like their own family martyr, someone who was an ancestor that had been killed in the war and, you know, had been fighting for their faith or for the Catholic Church. And regardless of how they were actually killed, you know, because to, to properly be a martyr, you can't have taken up arms. You have to have died. You have it has to have been like you have to have been nonviolent but regardless of how they were killed or how the circumstances of their death, they're regarded within the family as a martyr. Mm-hmm. And it's one one of the Catholic one Catholic practice in Mexico is to have a home altar, and like that person might be memorialized on the home mm-hmm. altar, and the family would pray to that person as a saint. So you know, so those are some of the ways that the memory stayed alive. Mm-hmm. I didn't talk about the U.S. I can talk about that.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean,
3: I'm just in general. I don't, I don't general, know
0: how long like... sh- my answer
3: should be. <laughs> I'm sorry, because like I said. <laughs>
0: You know, I teach. I teach, <laughs> no, so no, 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 it's good. It's uh, you're, you're like answering some of the questions, okay, asked, before the And you asked, can hopefully fine, just like trim so, yeah. the fat, okay, because <laughs> yeah, we'll a lot be fine.
1: I, I just wonder though, like, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess still whether it's you're talking about, you know, whether you're talking about Americans or, or people like Mexican Americans, how they remember this sometimes, do they are, are there yeah. places where this is big, and also like. I, do you? I don't know how much you are. You also follow contemporary Mexican politics, mm-hmm. but I mean, if you're looking at recent mm-hmm. history, I, I would assume you're looking at these issues also. Like you're talking about how in some most people, most Mexicans are not learning about this, or at least it's barely mentioned. Yeah, and then you yeah. have I don't know how sizable the minority of people who are for whom this is very important, right? I mean, having an unshared history, though, really does – is part of what contributes to political conflict. I mean, does it play a role in contemporary political conflict in Mexico yeah, or is it not yeah. a big enough group?
3: I mean, no, no. I mean, I think it does. I think – like, I've been talking about this with a, with a couple of friends um, in Mexico and here. And one thing we were kind of thinking about is in Mexico, if you ask people who the heroes of Mexican history are – their answer will tell you who they are politically. So like, if your heroes are the sort of the Catholic, people who brought Christianity and Catholicism to Mexico and people who were conservative and who defended Catholicism in Mexico, then it's a pretty safe bet that those people will also know about the Cristero War and will also have like, will sort of have a memory of religious persecution in Mexico and will regard the church and Catholicism in a kind of defensive way as as something that was persecuted or, or that faced repression by the Mexican government. The official line of the Mexican government is much more secular. And so, okay, actually, now, so Mexico for 71 years had single party rule. Um, the. The party that controlled Mexica, Mexico, the Mexican presidency, was called the Institutionalized Revolutionary Party, which gives you a sense of their politics, right? It was all about the revolution and implementing the reforms of the revolution. Um, and there's lots of debate about how well they did or did not do that. In the <coughs> mid-century, a political, a rival political party um, developed called the PAN, the Partido de. Action Nacional or the National Action Party, and that's widely regarded as the sort of Catholic conservative party. And people who I and the Pan, PAN membership was strongest in the areas where the Cristero War was fought. So absolutely, um, the division between sort of conservatism, Catholicism on the one hand, and a, a sort of I, a more leftist idea of the revolution, on the other hand, has shaped Mexican politics for throughout the 20th century. Um, and I would say today, um, yeah, there have been moments where it's kind of resurged as a, more almost like a cultural conflict in Mexico. One, one, one that happened when I was living there was, um, I think it was 2006 and Miss Universe, the Miss Universe competition was held in Mexico City and the Mexican competitor for Miss Universe wore a dress that had an image of the Virgin of Guadalupe and then it also had an image of, of Cristeros hanging from telegraph wires.
0: Wow. You kind of have to
3: see the photo.
0: Okay. Wow, um, I'm gonna Google that. Yeah, you yeah. should right. definitely so, Google wow. it.
3: And, um, and I think she had like a bandolier over her chest too. And, um, and then there was this whole debate and where Catholics were like, you're disrespecting our history, this is terrible. And then I think some Catholics thought, well, it's good just that this is being remembered, right? Yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then, and then you know, just sort of this debate over, like, what does this mean? And I think she did, had a statement where she said, well, this is part of Mexican history and I'm proud of it. I think she was from Jalisco, which is one of the states where the Cristero War was fought. Um, so, like, Okay, so maybe a kind of silly example, but also a way that, like, these memories kind of crop up and then people fight over them. You had another
2: part to your Just question. as an aside for yeah. your listeners, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, our, the feast day for Our Lady of Guadalupe is in a week. So On this December is kind 12th. of a good se- segue, yeah. like seven days from now. Come over to the yeah. shrine. So it does,
1: you know, have some resonance. Now that you've yeah. said that, though, you you are basically telling the listeners how long it will take for me to edit. Because <laughs> 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 you've indicated when I when we're recording, but that doesn't – it's.
0: Secrets of the podcast revealed.
1: <laughs> <or> <laughs> That's why I'm always careful to say like recently or yeah. soon. I learned
2: that Guadalupe occurs on December twelfth every year. Yes, for God, those who does. might be listening to it around that time. In a matter of right. days.
0: Right. So right. we'll be celebrating
1: <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah, I just, okay, you had a second
3: I, part to your question though.
1: though. Yeah, about the uh, like the legacy in the United States.
3: Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. So um as I was working on Revising my dissertation into a book, so I think it was 2011. The movie For Greater Glory was released, um, and that was a movie that was produced in Mexico, but it was in English with um, a kind of all-star cast that included Eva Longoria and Andy Garcia yeah. and Peter O'Toole. And it's—I don't think it's the best movie. Um, it's a little bit—it's—it's <laughs> it's beautiful. It was beautifully shot. It was just. Like historians never like movies about their history, right? Because their history, because we're like, it was more complicated than that. (laughs) It was more nuanced than that. And this movie is not nuanced. Every Catholic partisan in the movie, like every Cristero, is sort of like on a straight train to heaven. Mm -hmm. And every government figure is like, evil, evil, you know. Oh, take out that sound. <laughs>
1: <Sorry>. <laughs> no, we're definitely...
3: Actually, yeah, no, right. add some echo effects. And <laughs> and, um, and so that movie came out um, and was actually uh, released either simultaneously or right after it was released in the United States. and um, And it was... Heavily promoted by the Knights of Columbus, they put it on their magazine. They put it on the cover of their magazine. They did interviews, um, and it was just around the time of the Obama healthcare reforms. And one of the actors in the movie came out and said, um, "Well, this movie's really important because President Cailles is President Obama is basically the same as President Cailles. Like the, he's, you know, he's infringing upon." Um, religious freedom, and basically it's a slippery slope, and soon we're gonna have a Cristero war in the United States. And so for a historian who works on that topic, I don't care what they say, they're just talking about it. So that was really, I got to kind of engage with the public debate about that. Anyway, the movie was, I think it wasn't popular nationwide, but it was popular within Catholic circles, and like the Knights, local chapters of the Knights of Columbus would put it on, and as a result, um, there were a lot of local Catholic, like parish publications that did interviews with mexicans and mexican americans um about the cristero war like mexican American, Mexicans living in the united states and so i got this like it was like a research project for me i got to collect all these articles and
0: mm-hmm.
3: read about people's memories of their family involvement in the cristero war and these were people who were like a generation or two generations removed from the war and also a country removed from the war and they were really like in some cases really emotionally remembering their family's involvement in the war and remembering how it seemed to them like if they were children how they perceived it um, or how their families remembered it I also interviewed people I found on my own to talk to them about their family's memories so absolutely um I mean this is kind of the core of what I write about in my book when the Cristero war happened in the region that it happened the main states were Guanajuato, Jalisco, and Michoacan. And those were also the three main sending states for migrants. So just as it happened, people were migrating to the United States. And so the people that were coming to the United States were affected by the war. And so they absolutely were were involved with it. They were reading about it at the time. And then after it was over, they remembered it in their families. So a lot of people... A lot of Mexicans in the United States who trace their roots or their migration history back to that time remember the conflict. And even today, a lot of Mexican migrants, more recent Mexican migrants, come from that region and remember the conflict. So the movie, I think, was kind of popular with them. And then one other thing that happened was um, the Knights of Columbus sponsored two tours of the relic, like nationwide tours of the relics of the Cristero martyrs. So there are official martyrs of the Cristero War. And, uh, and and so their relics are, I think mostly kept in Mexico, but they the Knights of Columbus sponsored this sort of binational tour, mm-hmm. and they were taken to various parishes in the US, most of which were largely Mexican parishes. and people like thronged to come and see them mm-hmm. because that, that memory, it, it, not just because the relics were there, but because that, re- that memory was already there in their communities.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'm interested, just kind of of like to close this out, unless Todd or Mary has anything else you want to ask. You know, Todd did mention this about um, Our Lady of Guadalupe, which is also very much tied to the Immaculate Conception. Those are both kind of our patronal feast days. And um, so I just wonder, talking about this history, it shows to me how bound up Mexican Catholic history and US Catholic history yeah. can be and sometimes we don't think of it that way uh, as I mentioned kind of in the opening I think oftentimes in the US we're thinking of of our history with these sorts of conflicts almost only in terms of the European immigrants yes um, and I think it's important to, to to take this up as part of our own story or think about this uh, as a as a matter of who we are as as a church in the United States I think it's also important to our new president of the USCCB, yes. Archbishop Gomez yes. makes a, makes much of, of kind of of claiming our Lady Guadalupe as foundress of all of the Americas, yeah. and so I just kind of wonder, you know, this is your chance to kind of maybe say a little bit that's not just in with the, as a strictly a historian, but as somebody who spends most of your time or a lot of your time with the past. Any insights on what solidarity looks like today, like or, or how we might build solidarity? Within the church across the Americas. Yeah,
3: I mean, as a historian of Latin America, I this is a self-serving argument, but people need to know the history of Latin America in the United States, and they need to understand just sort of the fact that you know why why was the first Catholic church in the United States in Florida? You know why were why were the Catholic mission you know the Catholic missions in California were there before the Gold Rush? Mm-hmm. Right. So in a lot of ways. I mean, Timothy Matavina writes writes about this in a great book, um, U.S. Latinos in the Catholic Church, about how we, when we study Catholic history in the U.S., we tend to go from, like, Maryland to John F. Kennedy, and it's sort of this, all this, like, East Coast and Midwest Catholic history, and it's Northern European Catholic history, and we don't think about this much longer history of Catholicism in the rest of the Americas, you know, and how important that is to the history of the Catholic Church. And we don't think about, we think about the US relationship with the Vatican maybe, but we don't necessarily understand or think about Mexico's relationship with the Vatican or Brazil's relationship with the Vatican. And I think the, Brazil is the number one most populous Catholic country in the world, and Mexico, I think Mexico is number two. So, you know, like, there's a reason why the Pope comes to Brazil and Mexico when he comes to this hemisphere, right? Um, So, uh, and then uh, Latin American Catholics are the growth engine for the U.S. Catholic Church right now, right? I think it's, I don't want to go too much into that. It's a huge percentage, yeah. yeah. If you look at, like,
2: Catholics under 35, Latino Catholics are, like, more than 50%. If you look at Catholics over 60, it's... Basically, Anglo-Catholic still are...
3: Yeah, I mean, Latin American immigrants to the U.S. are the reason that the U.S. Catholic Church is growing. And if we don't understand their history and we don't understand their Catholic history, then we don't understand their Catholicism. Catholics here, especially people in the clergy, aren't aware of the particularities of the Catholicism, of the people who are coming here, who are forming the kind of growth engine of the Catholic Church. Then how how do we talk to each other? How do we reach them? How do we ensure that they stay engaged. Um, yeah.
1: It often seems to be like narratives about the Catholic Church in the U.S. are, they're so East Coast centric. And, yes. And, um, and it's understandable because so much of our, our institutional power was developed. Of course. Uh, here, but like. I mean, like I said, I'm from Texas. Yeah, yeah. You're from I Texas, converted so to Catholicism you know. in California, li- <laughs> uh-huh. or, or at least intellectually converted, living in California. Yeah, my brother was received into the church when he lived in El Salvador. Uh huh. Um, and then my dad's from New Mexico, so it's like my mo- my experience as a young. Man was always uh, of Catholicism was always Hispanic Catholic. I didn't know mm. I didn't know Irish Catholics or any, they were they were sort of a mythical <laughs>
2: thing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we were talking just to sort of maybe draw some of this together. Um, you know that the we were talking about the National Catholic Welfare Conference, which is the precursor to the yeah. USCCB. USCCB and the Department of Immigration, which is the precursor to Migration Refugee Services, was founded in 1921. One of the reasons it was founded was to kind of work with immigrants who were coming through New York and Ellis Island in order to stop uh, the proselytization of European immigrants into the United States by Protestants who were trying to pick them off. Uh, so that <laughs> occurred in, like, 1921. But within, you know, within a year of the Department of Immigration being established, they also established a, a place in El down in El Paso. Yeah. Um, now, this is important because they were doing the same thing, trying to help Mexican Catholics coming to the United States, also trying to counter Protestant, Protestant proselytization yeah. of Catholic immigrants coming into the United States. But I think it's important for, like, a contemporary perspective is that oftentimes the Catholic bishops are accused of, of, of responding to, you know, on their immigration issues, calling for legalization of people who are here illegally, primarily Latino mm-hmm. immigrants, Mexican immigrants, because they want to fill the pews and right. fill the coffers. But actually But actually they've been responding to Mexican Catholics for as long as they have been responding to European Catholics yeah. you know coming from Europe. So it is a, a, a it's a fundamentally mythological narrative to say that we're only responding to Mexican Catholics now because, because there's a self interest involved. Right. It's just it's a it's almost an anti Catholic narrative yeah. in, in a way. Yeah.
3: And no, and they were really active in, I mean, they were responding to them as they were coming across the border as a result of the Crucero War, um, processing their visa, you know, helping Mm -hmm. them to fill out their visa applications, pay their fees, um, finding homes for the um, Catholic clergy who were in exile, dealing with a whole lot of social issues too. And one of the main things that, I mean, I know you've written about this, Todd, and I've written about this too, but um, one of the main their main motivators was um, preventing the separation of families. And you see them in the 1920s and throughout the 20th century arguing against the separation of families and trying to help immigrants of uh, coming from wherever, including non-Catholic immigrants, um, to not be separated by our sometimes unjust immigration laws. And so, um, yeah, so this is the kind of work that's been it's been happening for a really long time, and part of it uh, has to do with this religious conflict that, you know, a lot of people don't know about, but more should.
1: It is, it's a good way to close out and to say it is amazing working here and, and learning from historians how actually consistent this Bishop's Conference in general has been on a lot of these issues. It's helpful it's to, to point out. that out. So thank you so much, though. This is great, very informative, and, and I think it's just helpful, you know, to kind of, as a way to close to say on on the... Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Remember to pray for our brothers and sisters and all of the Americas in a special way. I am Aaron Weldon.
0: And I'm Mary McCluskey. Thank you for joining us. Oh, and Todd. And I'm
2: Todd Scruton. You kind of like <laughs> steal my spotlight here, Mary. What's up with that?
0: Thank you for joining all of us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. Uh.